you look down and you see sores starting to just envelop your toes and they slowly move up to the top of your head and you you, you just ask why you know not not necessarily why but you know what what's going on right now and suddenly out of the midst here come your three friends talking to you about just incessant stuff not really making any points but just frustrating you and it all gets to the point where you're without your your your, your children that you've had over the years and, and your friends have left you emotionally and you're just alone looking for justification and so what is this this idea of justification is it something that separates man and god or is it Something that we find in baptism, justification is the action of declaring or making right in the eyes of God. And so, as we move forward into Job or anything like that, hopefully we can make this idea of justification a little more clear in how it practically applies to us, to Job, and to everybody else in the world. Also, this is Wyatt Waddell's newest song, And Train My Heart. Um, his info will be in the bio. And we're very happy to have him featured on our intro. Enjoy the enjoy the tunes and we'll be Everything to her is a movie. Everything to her is a rhythm and rhyme. She puts on a very good show. And I fall for it every time. Every time. There's a point where her sweet nothings mean so, so much to me. Perry Tong um, with Mitch, Mitch Wags, Wagenheim by Mitchell Wagenheim and Jordan McCafe. No, we're we're back here for <laughs> our episode of the Simple Pod. Happy to be back, talking about justification. Um, and and so a lot of ideas ring off. But Mitch, when you think about justification. It's like, what, four syllables, justification, five, four? Five, I think. Five, wow. So that's a big word for me. Um, so with that being said, I'm going to let you just kind of go with that, okay? All right, yeah. Feel free to, to interject whenever, uh, whenever necessary, whenever y'all want to talk about something a little bit deeper. But I think the number one place to start with justification is, is actually the definition that you had earlier. Uh, it's a really good definition and puts us on exactly the right footing. And I so, think Job's a is, brilliant character for it. That's the action of declaring or making right in the eyes of God. Yes, or okay. more accurately, being declared right in the eyes of God uh, by God. But the definition you start with is really, really good. Thank you. So my first way of approaching justification is from exactly the other side. Oh. So if we need to be declared or made right... Where did we go wrong? Because justification assumes that at some point things didn't go very well. Yeah. And as we've developed into this wonderful habit of uh, 
the original languages here on the Simple Podcast. Today, we're going to talk about the Greek and Hebrew terms for sin. Oh. And there are two vivid metaphors that are used for sin, and the easiest way to understand them is by using the Greek word chata. Now, chata is used in two key places. First is in Judges chapter 20, verse 16. Jordan, if I could get you to read that. Judges 20, verse 16. Okay. This is really awkward. And so why are we, if, if I might ask, why, why are we being blessed with two different lexicons right now, Mitch? Um, because the Greek is really, really good at describing this first metaphor. Uh, it's easiest to find in Judges 2016 with the Hebrew, just because Hebrew, I think, has a wider variance of meanings Uh. and Greek is a little bit more nuanced. But the metaphor is still the same. Okay. Hamartia is our Greek word of the day, and it also is the Greek word that is used for sin. Okay. Um, once Once we get Judges 2016 in the picture, we'll talk a little bit more about what this word actually means in its proper context. Sorry, I'm an old woman. Okay. Um, Judges 2016. Among all these soldiers, there were 700 select troops who were left-handed, each of whom could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. Thank you. Shout out to left-handed people. Yeah, this seems like a, a bit of an odd scripture. If you're listening and, and don't know Greek and Hebrew, you're probably going, what the heck are these crazy people talking about? This is about <clears throat> slinging stones. <coughs> the Hebrew word that's used for miss, when it says sling a stone at a hair and not miss, this word miss is chata. It's to fail at something, miss some mark which is where hamartia is mainly used as an archery term, where if you hamartia the mark, you've missed the mark. Hmm. But what, what mark have we missed? If chata is the word for sin and it's missing some mark, what's the mark that we've missed? Um, maybe justification? Sort of. Uh, just back up and what, what do we mean by that? What does it mean to miss the mark of justification? Fail. Yes, precisely. Um, but fail at what? Is it to, to fail a test? To fail in some hmm. relational way? To just fall down? To fail at walking? What does it mean? What do you think, Jordan? Um, I don't know. My mind is going kind of towards like failing to like to please God. Yeah, I think that's so. Maybe it's like definitely closer. Like like failing at righteousness. That's the word. Oh man! Now we're really zeroing in on it. There we go. Yeah, I had a word on the end of my tongue. I was like, what the heck is it? Worst feeling ever when you have an idea and you just can't articulate it. Um, sin in its first metaphor is failing at being truly human. Mm. What does it mean to be truly human? Genesis one and Genesis two. Specifically, Genesis 2, the image that's used of the man in the garden working it and fulfilling his God-given commission. So kind of what we talked about in productivity and self-discipline. 
It's it's failing at being human. Oh, okay. Now, this metaphor is really, really cool, but it's not even the best metaphor that describes sin hmm. and not even the most important metaphor in Chata. So what are you thinking? What are you thinking best describes it? Uh, I'm thinking to go back to my favorite, one of my favorite books in the Bible, <laughs> Genesis, the book of Genesis, chapter 4 and verse 7. How about that? It seems I've found, I, I have not missed the mark in, in finding this scripture. Amen. So, would you like me to read it? I would, I'd love it. Okay. Um, Genesis 4, 7 reads, If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Yes. This... This is the more important metaphor, I think, for describing what sin is. And thus, the reason why justification is necessary is the presence of sin in the world. Presence is, uh, sin is described here as this like beast. It's playing off a common Mesopotamian metaphor of a beast or a demonic beast waiting at your door, wow. waiting for when you walk out to just eat you. It's like kind of like the metaphor that like Satan's kind of like a lion. Yes. Yes. It's very deeply related to that metaphor. Yes. So that's really interesting <laughs> to Testament see how example. it like, yeah, exactly how it kind of coordinates back to the Old Testament. It just kind of clicked in my head and I'm like, wow. Yeah. Good. When preparing these notes for this podcast, there were a lot of wow moments. And the next time we talk about justification and go a little bit more in depth past the dynamic of heaven and hell and going into the dynamic of kingdom, there'll be even more wow moments. <laughs> so Genesis 4 brings up this really, really interesting word here, uh, desires to have you or in other, and this example of ruling over it. What, what does it mean to rule over sin? How can you rule over this wild beast? I think um I think I think the imagery is really just kind of powerful um just that word crouching that sometimes when you see something crouching um you you don't quite see it at first and so it's really easy to be caught off guard by it um, yeah that's really good and so I think that <laughs> while it's easy to to read the scriptures and stuff there's got to be something deeper than just saying that sin is there because it's just, it, sometimes you don't always see it. Yeah, definitely. There are times in the life of any Christian where sin is crouching at your door and you just don't see it. And then you open the door thinking nothing's wrong and boom, you're in some situation that's just awful. Mm-hmm. That Everything about it sucks. So if there's this thing if there is this beast that is sin, what are we going to do? Jordan, what do you think? Mm. Like, what are you, like, what are you asking for? Because, like, my mind is like, read your Bible. Pray to the Lord. Yeah, I think that's an interesting <laughs> point because if you know it's there, then you know to look for it, maybe. Mm, yes. And so it kind of brings us to the point of if we know it's there and we know to look for it, then how do we rule over it? Um, 
And so I guess that's kind of the big question, right? Yeah, definitely. And there's a question that I think will help us answer that question. Sure. Other than Jesus, what is a biblical figure that has ruled over sin? That isn't like Satan or Lucifer or things like that. What? People like that. When we're describing those spiritual things, who's a human being that has ruled over sin? Is there one? Uh, no, there's none. <laughs> it's a trick question. But was were there ever human beings who tried to? I think so. Mitch, how's your spiritual walk going? <laughs> it's going well. Okay, uh, at the good. moment, I think I am ruling over sin. But in my entire life, there have most definitely been moments where sin has ruled over me. And every person has that. Mm. Romans 6 tells us this. For yeah. all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God or have missed the mark, have hamartiat, the glory of God. Is that the is that the lexicon word that is used in that context? Yeah, hamartia appears in Romans 6, yes. I'm sure. Okay. And so it kind of talks about like missing the mark of God's righteousness then. Yes. Of God's righteousness, of God's glory, of to put it more broadly, just of God, missing God's mark. Like, would it kind of be like missing expectations? Yeah, exactly. It's God sets out a purpose for humanity to rule creation with him and to steward his creation, and we just fail. We fail almost immediately. There is maybe one or two verses in the entirety of the Old Testament where humans are actually doing things and not failing. But that time is very, very short. And so let's move into a little bit more practical explanation of this. So if all are under this power of sin, right, in the world, what happens? It's like, what is the consequence of that presence of Hamartia of Chata mm -hmm. in the world. I just, I think about my own personal uh, discipleship and even before that, I think would be a better way to answer that. I think it's just a lot of wanting um, and a lot of, uh, like a lack of fulfillment, maybe. I think it's really easy, um, especially just speaking from personal experience, to feel like, okay, I'm going to do this. Um, maybe I'll be with this person or... Maybe I'll play these video games or just anything and just give my all at it because I'm, I'm trying to be fulfilled in it. But um, at the end of the day, just finding that that's, there's still some lack of fulfillment there. And so maybe, and there's a lot that comes from that, like depression and, and, and lack of fulfillment and just wanting. So maybe for me at least, that's what I would say. Jordan, what, what about you? I think kind of the same, same things. Um, fulfillment, I think, was super big for me as well. Um, just because, like, before I didn't quite know what the heck I wanted, especially when I came to college. And I was really kind of, like, my emotions got the best of me. So, yeah, I think I can relate um, to that. Okay. How about you, Mitchell? 
yeah, I would very much be in the same boat that fulfillment or having a, a life of any sort of purpose, particularly purpose that's outside of survive until tomorrow, make money, etc., <laughs> which were the, the sole purposes of my life prior wow. to discipleship, that when sin is ruling over my life, particularly in the first 18 years of it, yeah. that leads to a complete annihilation of purpose and even to a certain extent of self-worth and self-valuation. Because if my exclusive purpose in life is just to make money, what happens if at a point in time I'm not making money? Yeah. Then I have, by defining the way that my value is derived when for any reason that isn't happening, that value is then gone. Yeah. And you're no longer justified by your money. Yes. I am no longer made right in my own eyes. Yeah. God's eyes are the same standard and the same definition of what it means to live the right or righteous life. And the easy, one easy way to, to think about this is if we look very broadly at the book of Job, what, how does he define his, like, how does he define his life and his value? I think it really is summed up in how he answers his wife in chapter two. Um, it's, it's right after that. Uh, I think it's right after what I described in our intro with the sores and him losing all of his worldly possessions and she's like, curse God and die. Um, and he responds to her in this way, am I not to take the good with the bad? Um, and he continues on and says, praise be to God. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think, I think he, he puts himself in, or he finds his identity in, in the things that he, in his relationship with God maybe. Yeah. I think it, it's great that you mentioned Job chapter 2 because Job chapter 2 is where we get a good description without necessarily using the word justification, but what it means to live well on earth, live according to God's will. Job chapter 2, when Satan comes to the Lord and... Uh, is trying to, or wants to tempt Job, God says, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. This is sort of the be one of the beginnings of this story of justification throughout Job, which we're just using as a, a simple parallel to explain some justification. So in chapter two, he gets his sense of self-worth, at least in God's eyes, from God, from his relationship and his blamelessness and being upright. Does this change through the book of Job? I didn't quite read through the book of Job. It's a great book. You should. Job is amazing. I have. Um, and I think... Um, I think it's something that Job really wrestles with. Yeah. Uh, but I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I haven't gotten into the lexicon on it, but 
I think it's something that at the end of the day, Job, um, he he maintains his identity and his fulfillment and how he strives to understand himself in God. I agree. I think that's very, very accurate. I think that it's a really good example of what it means of someone who is faithful to wrestle with issues of justification and of sin because that's what his friends are doing. His terrible, terrible friends are looking at him and saying, well, you're being punished in this way, which means you must have sinned. You must have fallen short. God tells us that Job doesn't do that. But there is still this sense of, at least in the friend's eyes, of punishing Job for whatever sins he must have theoretically committed. But I think that Job's a wonderful example of how someone who is faithful wrestles through this issue of of sin and of um, trials and temptations. And so, like, you mentioned his friends um, and, and, and their idea of justification. And so... Like back then was an idea that people were justified by the way that um, like God handled them with, with what he gave them in a way? Yeah. It's pretty common among ancient religions that if you behave well to the gods, if you offer the right sacrifices, if you do what they've asked you to do in certain circumstances – Think of various uh, Roman gods or gods of war that if you just you invoke them and serve them in war, you'll do well. And if you, for some reason, aren't doing well, that must mean that the gods of war are looking down on you in some way. So most ancient religions have something, obviously not Judaism to this extent, um, or Christianity, which has not come on the scene at the point when Job is written, but most ancient religions had this view of what's basically works righteousness, that if I do what I'm supposed to, and if I am a good person, according to those gods, then I am fine in their eyes, and they will bless me as a result of that. Okay, and so that's kind of like, like, it's like a trap door in my way. In my idea of thinking, at least, because, like, you can be as superficial as you want in a way, but as long as you're sacrificing to the gods, it still kind of works. Yep. And this, there's even a, a level of this in the way that um, some of the prophets interact with Israel, and they talk about and convey the message from God that the people's hearts are what God is looking for. And they're still, you know, offering sacrifices in the temple and whatnot and doing what they think is a way to obtain justification to, you know, live according to the Levitical laws. And when those laws are broken to offer sacrifice and move on and then hopefully repent. That doesn't happen for most of the Old Testament. But there's still this quasi-works righteousness that's present when the heart isn't there 
it doesn't actually work. And that's one of the main messages of the prophets is that the heart of a Christian in when we incorporate the Old and New Testaments, when we combine them, the heart of a Christian, one who follows Yahweh, the heart is what actually matters, not just the actions. It's easy to go through the motions and everything be catastrophic underneath that. That's way, way easier than the other way around and visibly, faithfully struggling through things like Job did. Mm -hmm. Job challenges God. He demands an audience with the being that created him. That's faithful wrestling. And the amazing thing is that God responds. Interesting. I think it's really interesting how, like, how God is definitely, like, a, a God that's after our hearts. Because, like, you can't really get away with going through the motions. Like, yeah. in the end, like, we're all going to be, like judged according to the word and like the, the heart behind it besides the action. Yep. I, I very much agree. And it's incredibly important because in modern Christianity, air quotes, there are so many people who say, as long as you claim that Jesus is Lord and you pray Jesus into your heart, whatever that means, if you just accept God, whatever that means, and if you just live righteously, then you'll be fine. That isn't right. That is just a unbiblical view of justification. And so how do we, what is a biblical view of justification? Because I know that there's a lot of people that um, grow up in, in a setting where this is what they know and, um, is there scripture that kind of just touches on that or, I mean... Yeah, I mean, there are, there are tons of scriptures that are part of this great narrative that the Bible is conveying. The God created his... God created all of humanity and elected a specific portion of them to be his people, ethnic Israel in the Old Testament... Mm-hmm. They and all of the others utterly, totally, and completely fail him. That means that something then has to break the power of sin and death over the world. And I think one of the best scriptures that explains this and explains the end result of it is 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to go ahead and look there now. This is the, at least a component of, Uh, what is actually the gospel. Too often we water down the gospel to just be whatever we want it to be, and that doesn't require any type of actual sacrifice for it. So if I can get someone to read verses 18 through 22 of 1 Peter chapter 3. Um, Get it, Jordan. Thanks, Karen. You said 18 through 23? 22. Okay. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, um, to, sorry, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation the imprisoned spirits to those who were disobedient. Long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built, and only a few, wait, ugh, 
in it, only a few people, Aiden and all, were saved through water. And this symbolizes, this water symbolizes baptism, that now saves you. Also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hands with, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Love that, y'all. Awesome. Uh, just an incredible scripture that explains a whole bunch of great stuff. One main note that is purely grammar-based. It says, verse 21, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. This does not mean that baptism is merely a symbol. Or, as theologians will fancifully put it, an outward sign of an inward something. That's not how grammar works. It just isn't. There is a clear link in the symbolic nature of baptism, not that it is a symbol, purely a symbol. Because baptism is a symbol. First Peter 3 talks about its symbolic relationship to Noah and the ark story. But baptism, or more accurately, what Acts 2.38 calls, Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 3 is alluding to that, but it is alluding to it purely with the section of baptism. This does not mean that Peter does not believe in baptism, or 1 Peter doesn't believe in baptism. That would be wrong. That would be an incorrect interpretation of this text. It is, however, a very common interpretation of this text. The story of 1 Peter is that, or this passage, is that Jesus and his sacrificial death on the cross is what breaks the power of sin and death. As we know this in verse 22, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Very end of verse 22 there. This is the overarching story that the Bible is eventually leading toward. This is the climax of the biblical narrative, Jesus' sacrificial death in accordance with a whole host of Old Testament passages that are all leading up to Jesus being the person who breaks the power of sin and death in the world. And so, in short, we're justified by Jesus. Yes, we are just, we can be made justified by truly justified by Jesus's death. Jesus opens that door. Mm. We still got to walk through the door. Some people have taken this text and gotten the exact same thing that you got out of it, but without going the step further and saying that Jesus died, that means that all of us are good, (laughs) that everyone will eventually be saved. Sure. Nope. That's not how God works. God says... I am offering eternal life, forgiveness of sins, all that can can be combined into justification. But you still have to accept that gift. Yeah, Yeah. it's kind of like a relationship. Like, you got to work at it. You got to put in work to get stuff out of it. Yep. Relationship is a very good way of understanding the story of justification in that it's not an isolated incident but it's an overarching narrative. And so can, 
can one person be justified at one point in time in their life and at another point in time later on not be justified? Yes. Really? It is eminently possible to lose uh, your justification slash salvation. So this was not sort of in the notes for today, but it's extremely clear in the biblical narrative um, that just because someone claims to be a Christian, one who is in the community of Christ, who is justified as a result of their entrance into the community through the rite of baptism, it's abundantly clear that it is possible to claim that Maybe to even live as that, but to not end up that way. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, the, uh, the story of the wide and narrow gates, makes this explicit. Yeah. It reads, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Everyone doesn't find that road, and it is possible to wander from one road to the other. Everyone is on the wide path at some point. After they've died, and I accidentally mentioned this as Romans 6 earlier, it's actually Romans 3. Romans 6 is a separate passage, getting a little bit ahead of myself. Thanks for clearing that up, Mitch. It's most please it don't most please don't ever question. say that, that 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 you have dumb questions. I'm sorry, it's a habit. It's okay. I I ask more dumb questions than you. Okay. Neither of you ask dumb questions. Wow, <laughs> Papa Mitch. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, shortly after the passage I just referenced in Matthew seven, the not everyone's going to be saved because there are two paths. Everyone's on one path. Everyone's on the wide path. That's why it's the wide path, to make room for everybody. And then there's a narrow path that doesn't have room for everybody that one eventually hopes to get on and can get on through properly converting, for lack of a better and term. And so what's, how do you, I think of like I-35 and I-70, so how can you properly convert from I-35 to I-70 <laughs> in, a, in a spiritual sense, Mitch. Because that's, that's a tough endeavor to any one person already. How can we spiritually align our heart to be able to convert from I-35 to I-70? It's a wonderful question. Thank you. And uh, to answer completely would take much too long than we have here. So here's sort of the, the Spark Notes version. Acts chapter 2, repent and be baptized. Okay. More, more Greek for you. Okay. Uh, metanoia oh. is a word for repent, and it means uh, a change of mind. So in its most basic sense, refers to, I used to view, say, adultery, yeah. or how Jesus defines it in the New Testament as sexual impurity. People, everyone used to view that as okay by their nature, which is a result of the fall in Genesis 3. Yes. God comes, Jesus comes, and teaches that is, in fact, not okay. 
metanoia, repentance, is coming to view our sinful actions as wrong and condemning our lives in that way. By condemning our life of sin, that is how one repents. And then one finishes this process with a correct baptism, i.e. a baptism that is done in water. Baptism is not some metaphorical symbol wherein one is baptized in the spirit, whatever again that means, that one is baptized in water in participation, symbolic participation of the death, burial, death, burial, and resurrection. And then that person for the rest of their life continues to live that way. Okay. Continues to live in a repentant state. And so that's where the works come in. Kind of that Jordan was talking about, right? Like that's how you know. Pretty much. Um, Jordan actually gave the answer to that a little bit earlier with, with one word and its relationship. Is later, <laughs> later in Matthew 7, there's the passage which goes from uh, verse 21 to 23. And it talks about not everyone who says to be Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus answers this question, well, how do we know if we're in that group or in the, the right group? And says, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. This word know is really interesting. I don't happen to have the, the Greek up, but it's referencing an incredibly important Hebrew word, which is yada. And it means to experience, but is often translated as to know. Knowing does not mean some sort of intellectual assent. You know, you can't say you know the Bible if you don't believe it, but you can recite every word. Okay. That is not yadaing the Bible. It's not correct. What is correct is if you read your Bible, if you live a spiritual life, and you have this personal relationship with God. Those all combined tell you you are in the right state, that you are justified. If you stop believing, so if I were to wake up tomorrow and say, I no longer believe God exists, and I do not want to live the life of a Christian, God says, okay, that's your choice. God gives us the freedom to make our choices, and then he honors them and says, if that's the way you want to live, that's your choice. It does prevent us from living eternally with God. There is, there is a hell, which is eternal separation from God, that if one chooses, you'll go there. Yeah, I think, I think um, at least before I started studying the Bible, I think, I think something that really hit in my mind at least about religion and all this stuff, is that if God, like you hear about love a lot in the Bible, you hear like this idea of love. And so if God really loves us, why would he even create an, an alternate route for somebody? Like why would he, why would he do that if he, if he loved people? And um, I know Mitch has an answer to this. He's, he's, um. 
Bible. Yeah, he's, he's flipping his pages, but um, I think that where I found my answer was in the scriptures. And so I, I think that the great thing about having a relationship with God and um, being able to call yourself a follower of Jesus is that any question that you have, it'll always be answered in the scriptures. Um, but Mitch, I know, I know you like to give exact answers for exact questions. Um, and so I'll let you, I'll let you, uh, just spring me. Yeah, no, I think that your, your answer is exactly right. I think that it's a very, very good answer. Um, it's something that trips a lot of people up. This idea of yeah. if God is loving, why is there punishment? Mm. And there are tons and tons of scriptures that make different points on this, but I think the most important answer is that God didn't make that punishment. We did. Oh, like after like after the first sin? Yeah. Oh, God God said you can do you can eat of any tree in this entire garden except one. And Adam and Eve said, cool, we're going to eat of that tree. And then sin entered the world. But each of us also made that choice. Thus, we became sinful. So if God is truly going to rescue the world, he has to destroy sin. And so when, when we talk about the garden and Adam and Eve, that's while that is a, is, is a biblical story, it's directly relational, which seems to be the word of the last 30 minutes. It's directly relational to our own spiritual walk. Yeah. So Adam and Eve made the decision that humankind will determine for themselves what is good and what is not. And we're terrible at it. We are utterly awful at it. Open any history textbook and you will see that throughout human history, no one gets it right. That's the sin of the Garden of Eden. But we also do the same thing. We're commissioned to be rulers of God's world. It's the point of humanity. And we say the way we're going to rule is through death, through violence, through coercion, through evil, through all of these terrible things, and that infects us with this, this power. It puts us under us under the power of sin. Then when God comes and rescues the world, he has to destroy us. Not because he wants to, but because it's his nature. God is perfect and sinless. When sinless and sin come together, Sin is destroyed every single time. Yeah, and I think I think that point is really wrapped up. Um, I'm reminded of a scripture in Ezekiel, uh, chapter 18, to be precise, um, in verses 22 and 32. It's good. Um, and I can read that. Um, but it says here in Ezekiel 18, Starting in 22, it says, None of the offenses they have committed will be remembered against them, because of the righteous things they have done, they will live. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? 
But if a righteous person turns from their righteousness and commits sin and does the same detestable things a wicked person does, will they live? None of the righteous things that person has done will be remembered because of that unfaithfulness they are guilty of, and because of the sins they have committed, they will die. Yet you say the way of the Lord is not just. Hear you, Israelites, is my way unjust? Is it not your ways that are unjust? If a righteous person turns from their righteousness and commits sin, they will die for it. Because of the sin they have committed, they will die. But if a wicked person turns away from the wickedness they have committed and does what is just and right, they will save their life. Because they consider all the offenses they have committed and turn away from them. That person will surely live, they will not die. Yet the Israelites say, the way of the Lord is not just. Are my ways unjust, people of Israel? Is it not your ways that are unjust? Then 30, therefore, you Israelites, I will judge each of you according to your own ways, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent, turn away from all your offenses, then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, people of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. Amen. And that's really powerful to me because... um, when I started studying the Bible and when I started growing my friendships and, and, and just trying to find God, um, reading scriptures like this really took the cake because it just it shows the profundity of, of salvation and, and not just that, but God's wish for his people. Um, and so in terms of repent and live, you you'd say repent is kind of it's it's something that we see in our actions, um, and, and it's just indicative of everything that's under the surface, right? Yeah, I think that's a really good description. That repentance is evidenced by our actions, i.e., if we don't re- if we repent, our actions are there, but those actions can be faked. Mm-hmm. So it's not just the actions; it's the underlying state of our hearts. Mm-hmm that will then inherently result in action. And more so justification, right? Yes. And when in, in the New Testament, when one repents of their sin, when they recognize we are terrible judges of good and evil, and when we accept God's definition of that, that the way we've lived our lives is wrong, and we make the commitment to live God's way, not ours, and our hearts are overturned. That is when that's repentance. And then as a result of that, we are baptized. And it's Mm -hmm. at that point in God's eyes, we are justified. It's a beautiful thing. Um, And so, yeah, I think, do you have any other comments, Jordan? Jordan shooketh as per usual. So, Okay, so she's the first degree of her two degrees right now shook. But, yeah, I think that's going to close us out. That's, our, that's one of our installments um, about justification and the roles that it plays in our life, is specifically as it pertains to repentance. Um, and so that's going to that's gonna wrap us up right there. Um, if you guys are interested in learning a little bit more about justification, stay tuned. Hopefully we can touch on it some more in the future. Feel free to contact us um, if you have any constructivity for us, any encouragement. Jordan loves that. Um, 
you can hit us up at simplepodcast1234 gmail.com. She checks it, I don't know, like kind of periodically. Somewhat. Somewhat periodically. Yeah, so. Yeah, so if you guys if you guys encourage her, she will check her email more. So we got the email and we have at the simple pod on Instagram. But anyways, that's gonna close out our first uh topic episode of justification. Mitch, how do you feel about it? Great. This is such a mind blowing topic, and it's really humbling looking at the grace that is offered to us. And the fact that so many just simply choose not to is really quite terrifying. Yeah. And so it's out there for everybody. Um, it just takes that initiative. But anyways, that's going to close us out. And, um, yeah, thanks for, thanks for listening.